Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Carolyn Dewar, senior partner at McKinsey and best-selling author of CEO Excellence. In this episode, we discuss Carolyn's journey. And right off the bat, you can tell a lot about someone when you learn that at the age of 12, they walked into a college admissions office and asked, how do I get accepted here? And that's what Carolyn did. And that's where she ended up going. I loved her story and her dedication to her research, her craft. She has worked at McKinsey for over 20 years in a wide variety of roles focused on strategy, people, leadership, and transformation. As the founder and global leader of McKinsey's CEO practice, Carolyn has had access to and worked with CEOs, founders, board members, and executives to drive change at scale and talk about strategies, culture, organization, and ultimately what optimizes the operating model and the executive time. I could have asked Carolyn 10 more hours of questions about her book, the New York Times bestseller, CEO Excellence, and it discusses the six mindsets that distinguish the best leaders from the rest. So I highly recommend it. I absolutely loved reading it. What inspires me isn't that Carolyn is focused on the leader's to-do list, but rather their to-be list. And it's a different way to think about your day and your goals. It focuses on what qualities you want to have, how you want to show up and what parts of yourself you want to bring forward in any situation. Absolutely love that. Please enjoy this conversation with the fabulous Carolyn Dewar. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. I know this is a long time coming, so thank you so much for the flexibility of schedule and all of that. Absolutely. Thanks for not giving up on me. (laughs) Now, before we talk about your success as a senior partner at McKinsey and the co-author of the best-selling CEO Excellence, I always like to rewind people's highlight reel all the way back because I find that the childhood stories, the background stories just add so much more. If you don't mind sharing with our listeners where you grew up. I grew up outside Toronto in a suburb called Whitby, just a small town. It was the last stop on the commuter train into the city. And just a very typical growing up story with my sister and my parents, small town. A few of us have made it out. Many are still there having wonderful lives. That's where I'm from. And one of the questions I always like to fast forward to is college, because what I've realized over the last four or five years as I've been interviewing these folks, people don't know what they want to be or do when they're 17 or 18, and they choose a college and they choose this major that sets them off on this professional and personal life path. But how did you choose St. Andrews for your college? I always like to hear that story. Well, I grew up in Canada. My parents were British and we used to go on family vacations. And when I was about 10 or 11, we were doing a tour around and we stopped for the day in St. Andrews in Scotland, which if anyone's been, is a really small town built in the 1200s. And it is all 
golf tourists and university students. So you can imagine, it's a tiny, walled medieval town with 35 pubs and a university and the old course where golf was invented. And I fell in love with it. This was way before Harry Potter was written, but it was kind of like going to Hogwarts. And I loved it. As a 12-year-old, I walked myself into the admissions office, as you do, and I said, I think I might want to go here. How does a Canadian go here? (laughs) They handed me a bunch of forms and paperwork and things. There's a twinning program and a bunch of Canadian programs, the link with the UK. And I just tucked it away in the back of my head and never forgot about it. So when it came time to apply for school, I went to my guidance counselor in the local high school and said where I wanted to apply. And she thought I was nuts. I submitted an application. It was actually through a scholarship for Canadians. And I ended up going. It was totally random. We wore academic gowns and wrote all our exams in fountain pen. You had the choice of dry or sweet sherry to sip while you took exams. Super old school. I love, and I'm sure the listeners would agree, you learned so much about someone, especially your story, in that one sentence of, at the age of 12, I happened to introduce myself to the admissions director. So well well done. So what did you decide to study there? I studied economics and international relations, history, politics, economics, all of that. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just thought those were interesting things to learn about. It's interesting, fast forward 20 plus years later, and you work at the intersection of all of those things in so many ways. What was your first job after college with your sherry drinking exams at St. Andrews? I am a lifer. I started at McKinsey right out of undergrad. So I've been here for 23 years. There was something about that naivety of it was not a core school that McKinsey recruited at. There was no consulting club or any of these things that people do today. It was early days of the internet, which makes me sound very (laughs) old. There was something called Wet Feet Press and There was another one, I can't remember, where you could go on and find out about jobs. I saw this job called Management Consultant, and I thought it sounded great because it was a lot like school. You got to continue just doing projects and interesting things. I wrote a letter off to our London office, and they wrote back saying, okay, well, you've almost missed the application window, but we have one more weekend this weekend if you want to come down and see what it's all about. I took the bus down to London and slept on my friend's dorm room floor. It never occurred to me that they would pay for a hotel or transportation until they asked for my receipts and showed up and had some interesting conversations and didn't really know what I was getting into. The world has changed so much in three years, let alone 20 plus years. And you'd mentioned it was at the infancy of the internet. But if you can describe your experience there, it sounds like a wonderful experience so far at McKinsey, but you've worked everywhere from looking at financial services, tech, consumer, then switched over to the culture and transformational change within companies. Super interesting topics, but just to discuss or summarize your 20 plus year history there. I think the reason why I've been here so long is because you can reinvent and it's as if you have a new job every few years. I started off in our Toronto office, worked a lot in financial services, and that's actually been one consistent thread all the way through. I still do a lot of my work in financial services, banking, asset management, payments, And started off as just a generalist, trying to learn everything that I could. Again, with that mix of the math side of economics with the history side, I always kind of liked that mix of quantitative and qualitative and did a lot of work in financial services for years. And then started doing more organization work a few years in. And at the time, that was in a way relatively new for us. We had done org design and things, but culture, top team, all these off topics. 
I was in the early days of us exploring a lot of that and ended up helping build a bunch of that for the firm. Moved to the West Coast about halfway through. I'm here in the Bay Area, which just opened up a whole different world of tech clients and fast growth companies and all the changes they go through. And now I'm sitting leading our CEO and board excellence work. So really looking at that integrative view at the top of what does it take to move and build these organizations? What does that look like? I know I do a lot of ESG work at my company, but the environmental things and climate is a lot easier to quantify. But to your point about the qualitative stuff, looking at human capital, looking at talent, looking at the mindsets of CEOs is squishy because it's not as quantifiable. What have you learned that is quantifiable in that realm? Started all the way back, even before CEO, when we were doing the culture work. Culture is a soft, squishy topic. How do you actually use data and analytics to understand what are the management practices, the behaviors that really do drive performance and health, as opposed to just a happy meter, which is important, but is that really what the company needs? And I think a lot of companies even now are having that debate. Employees want something, we need something else. How do you find that intersection? So we bring a lot of data to that to really inform the decisions. And we tried to do the same as we were diving into CEOs of, first of all, who is a good CEO? How do you even measure that? And then what are the factors going in that really move the needle on performance in a long-term sustainable way, to your point? For those who haven't read, I will highly, highly recommend the book CEO Excellence from Carolyn and a few of her McKinsey partners. Do you want to share, to rewind a little bit before we get into the book further, how that came about? I mean, you mentioned just your evolution at McKinsey and the work you've done focusing on culture and then leadership, but how far or long ago did you think about the book before it actually became a book? Informally, we've done a lot of this work for years, but about three or four years ago, my co-authors and I, so Scott Keller and Vic Malhotra and I, were literally traveling together from a session that we'd had with a group of folks who were about to take the CEO role. And so these were all the next year, about 20 or 30 CEOs. We had them together for a couple of days. And as part of that, we had iconic CEOs come and speak to them about what is the role like. And each one of those talks was incredibly compelling. Everyone took notes. But each time the answer was a little different in terms of, here's what I did. Here's what I did. Here's how I've made it successful. And as we were driving back to the airport, it was a couple of hour drive. I think we were reflecting on, wow, if I was in those shoes, about to step into the shoes of being a new CEO, how would I make sense of all that? Because there's these biographies written about specific leaders, and then there's broad leadership books, but no one had really looked across the CEO role specifically and said, what are the patterns? What are the lessons learned? What are the things that those who do it well do consistently? And what are the things to avoid? And we have the privilege of talking to so many CEOs around the world that couldn't we have that pattern recognition? Couldn't we help bring those stories to life? And that's really what got us excited. This is where I love the quantitative aspect of how you and McKinsey work, but it looks like you guys, for this book, analyzed 20 years of data across almost 8,000 CEOs from, I think it was like 3,500 of the largest public and private companies across 60, 70 countries and two dozen industries. Looking at that, though, what I liked is the summary I read of the framework of it. So then you looked at performance results, you looked at the corporate conduct, then narrowed it down to about 200 top performing CEOs before interviewing however many you chose. So how many do you end up interviewing? And then how did you choose those that you ended up interviewing for the book? We did. We applied a bunch of analytical filters to those who've been CEOs in the last 25 years. They had to be in the top quintile of excess TRS performance relative to their industry peers. 
So your company had to have outperformed other peers. That was to normalize for the fact that tech CEOs versus a mining company have just had different results. You had to have been in role for at least six years. And there wasn't a magic to the number six, but we did want to make sure of two things. One, that we could ascribe the performance of the company in part to your tenure. So you had to have been there long enough that that was you. And also we wanted you to have been there long enough that you had to eat your own cooking, so to speak. Decisions you made at the beginning, you are now living with those decisions and the second and third order implications of those decisions and could really reflect on it. And then there were a number of filters around reputation effect and some of the behaviors that we expect of CEOs today. We got down to this 200. Of those 200, we reached out far and wide, as many as we could, to see who would offer their time. And we ended up speaking to 70 of them. And each of them one-on-one for about half a day. You can imagine this was in the early days of the pandemic. It was all in the first six months. And so in a way, there was a silver lining there, I think, because people were at home. These CEOs were literally on their couch at home. They didn't have their handlers with them, their comms people, their chiefs of staff, scripting. And I think people were in a reflective mode and maybe willing to share and be a little bit more vulnerable than they might typically. We're incredibly blessed for how open and sharing people were about what their journey had been and a real opportunity for them to pass on some of that guidance. A lot of people recognized that they'd had to figure it out on their own. How do we share and frankly democratize some of that wisdom so that everyone can learn from it? I love just the timing that you got with the access. Not that I was remotely in that boat, but just the first three or six months of the pandemic was a whole different mindset. Talk about the depth of answers you must have gotten. I'm curious when you did these half day interviews with these CEOs, how did you structure the survey? What were some of the key questions or methodology of what to ask so that it's similar across the board? Because what I love about the book is you distilled it down to half a dozen mindsets, frameworks. Of that, what were the larger questions you asked before you distilled it down to those six mindsets? The precursor question that we had dug into before we did the interviews is what is the CEO job anyway? And that's something we obviously tested in the interviews. And then we were able to structure it around those six aspects of the job. You have to set direction for people strategy, vision, resource allocation, which is a biggie. You have to align the organization. So all things culture, talent, org design, how do you think about mobilizing this organization? Your top team, how do you really manage not just the composition of the team, but how well it works together so that you can lead through leaders. That's one of the big shifts that people find as they step into the role. And then the three pieces that frankly feel the most new or the most different in being a CEO, managing the board. What does that look like? A lot of people feel like they're prepared because they've been to board meetings before. It's a whole other beast when you're the CEO. The external stakeholder piece, I think you talked about ESG, but just the gamut of external voices now who have an opinion on your business and how do you engage? How do you think about that? And then bringing it back to the personal. So we made sure in each of them, we talked about their own operating model. How do they spend their time? How do they show up as a leader? What does that look like? So those are the six aspects of the role that we really anchored on. I think the other piece we went to, and we're actually going back now again and have a series of of articles coming out, there's also that evolves through your journey as the CEO. So the four stages of being a candidate, what is that like? Being a new CEO, being mid-tenure. Satya Nadella was at the time at the six-year mark. Okay, I've done that. Now what's next? And then preparing to exit, both kind of getting succession planning ready, And frankly, thinking about what's next for you, because that's an interesting pivot point for leaders who've been all consumed by this job. 
how do they get ready to step out? And what does that look like? Those are the two angles that we structured. Are you doing the new articles with follow-up conversations? Is that going to be a book? Is that going to be a series of articles? So far, it's articles. So we have a new one that just came out in December for new CEOs called Starting Strong. And it talks all about how that first time as a CEO, yes, it's a moment for you, but it's actually an unfreezing moment for the organization. So how do you really take advantage of that moment to refresh? And then the one just out today actually is about CEO candidates. How do you think about maybe a couple of years you want to be on that list? What should you be thinking about? And how do you frankly not shoot yourself in the foot by focusing too much on a horse race and not enough on your day job? And what does that look like? Those are really timely conversations for people. Of all the interviews you've done, I love how you distilled it down to six mindsets. And my favorite was probably connection. Going back to Satya, I remember reading a CEO profile about him and how first, I think it was a week or a month on the job, he led with empathy. So he knew about the warring factions within the company, decided to bring in a consultant to just talk to each of those groups and ultimately said, we need to be on the same page and really did a wonderful job of transforming the business based on culture. But to the mindset that you guys shared is connection. How do we share that to really make sure we're all on the same page? And leading with empathy was one that I really just think about Satya. Was there anything really surprising to you after doing all the research that you had no idea or would have expected from the research going into it? A couple of things. One is 68% of the CEOs we talked to said that now that they're in the job, they realize they weren't at all prepared for it. And I think a lot of people who've had big jobs, they've run a P&L, they've run a geography, they run a BU. They're like, I got this. It can't be that different. Overwhelmingly, the CEOs all say it's way different. It's much more different than you think. And it's different internally because you have to learn to lead through others. The scale is just too big for you to possibly be able to dig in there and do it. You need to find a way to align and mobilize and lead people. And then the external pieces, I think, is what really surprises people. The amount of time and energy into engaging with the board. What does that look like productively? Other stakeholders, your own time and how you lead. One would be the job's more different than people thought. I think the other one, and it was actually Satya who said this, we talked about it being a lonely role with almost everyone. And there's lots of reasons why. He came through with a very cut through answer. It's an information asymmetry problem. No one underneath you sees all the pieces that you see. And no one above you, your board, your investors, see everything you see. You're this single node of integration. And there's work in that. Beyond just getting everyone else to do all the things they need to be doing, because you're the one that sees all the pieces, there's actually work that only you can do. You're noticing, are things connecting in the way they should? Are there interdependencies that need to get managed? Does everyone have the context that they need? Are you the one looking around corners to see what's next while most folks are running the day-to-day? And the really great CEOs, those who've outperformed, are unapologetic about that is unique work that they have to do, and they need time to do that. They're not scheduled in meetings morning till night every day. They actually have time to think and to learn and to be learning themselves and to be working through. I think we often forget that their job is not just to respond to everyone else, but they have their own work to do as well. Speaking of calendar time maintenance to allow for that expansion of thought, did you find, whether it was with the 68% of the ones who were very honest with you about not knowing what to expect the CEO role or the 32% that were very confident they were capable, are there any things in their day, their week, or their overall schedule that outside of the frameworks of these mindsets that you would attribute to allowing that? So whether it's blocking five hours a week to think and read with no noise or to do 
meditation or some of the common links in terms of tactically allowing for that? The mindset on the personal operating model is this notion of do only what you can do. Do you have a really high bar for could this work actually be delegated or better done by someone else? Should it be done at all? Are the things that I'm doing uniquely adding value? So they had a very high bar for where they got involved and where they didn't. I think most of them will admit that in the first six or nine months, they were trying to do too much. It's like drinking from a fire hose. And then at some point, the wheels fall off. Ajay Banget MasterCard tells the story of waking up or landing in Singapore after being up for 35 hours. And he had promised everyone that he would always reply to every email before sundown. And he had thousands in his inbox and he just realized it couldn't happen. And he went back to his team and he said, hey, you guys have got to help me focus on the right things and prioritize my time. And they actually exercised a bit of tough love with him. They said, whoa, whoa, you're the CEO. If you don't know what the highest and best use of your time is, we can't help you with that. If you can articulate your priorities, we can help you manage it. But you're the one who sees all the pieces. And most of them had a pretty intentional method for knowing here's the four or five areas where I'll make the biggest difference this week or this month. And then some mechanism with their EA or their chief of staff, they would look back on the month and say, did I spend time on the things that I said were important? Or was I consumed by a bunch of urgent things that kind of frittered away my time? And we saw everything from color coding to blocks to (laughs) imagine all the various things. Most people had some regular exercise routine that was really important to them. And again, unapologetic about it because it made them better at their job, right? This wasn't a luxury and rules around kind of how many hours of sleep they got and all those various things. But the common thread was really they knew or they forced themselves to get intentional about where are the spots where I'll add the most value and how do I learn to work through others for those who aren't. And frankly, if I'm leaning in too much, it raises the question, do I have the right leader in that area? If you're having to lean in all the time too much, what's the unlock there? Because that's not sustainable. Gosh, I could ask you 10 more hours of questions related to this book and the research. Maybe one or two more before we switch to you and the typical growth from failure questions. What is a couple of things that after all the research you learned from the CEOs then applied to your life? There was a notion of how you show up that really resonated with me. And Michael, who is the CEO of Cincinnati Children's Hospital, takes it really literally this idea of his to-be list as opposed to your to-do list. Everyone has a to-do list. What's your to-be list? And he literally prints out his calendar at the beginning of each day, old school, piece of paper, he prints it out. But he looks at each of the big things and he thinks, look, as the CEO, I'm having to almost change TV channels throughout the day of going from a tough regulatory meeting to a town hall with 2,000 people where I need to inspire to maybe a strategy meeting where the team's been swirling for months and they just need someone to be decisive. And he writes next to each of those, how do I need to show up in that meeting? to be the most effective. And it's not that he's being inauthentic. He's an incredibly authentic person, but he's conscious that how he shows up will make a difference. And it's just a reminder to himself as he's switching from thing to thing, what his organization needs of him in that moment, which is very different than kind of who am I or what are my strengths or what do I bring? Even more broadly, you can ask that question, especially now with all the change going on in the world, tough decisions getting made in companies, what does the organization need of its leader in this moment? And am I stepping into that? And I think that's something I've certainly taken to heart and it could apply to any of us. To be list. Oh gosh, that's incredible. Honestly, there's so many questions I have about the book that if people are just listening, I want them to summarize to get as key takeaways. Are there any actionable items that people can take after reading this book? 
We thought we were writing a book about CEOs, but it really applies to any leader other than a little bit of the board stuff. But even that, we all have stakeholders that we're engaging with. One we didn't touch on as much as we think about setting direction is this idea of being bold. And how is the leader, can you really give permission to the organization to think boldly about what it could be? And I think there's a lot of reimagining happening right now. At Nike, they used to think that their job was to sell clothes. And then they realized, actually, we need to sell sports. We need to sell an athletic lifestyle, and that will come. At MasterCard, they worried a lot about gaining market share against Visa and Amex, which at the time was 8% of the world's transactions. And Ajay Banga said, well, that's actually the wrong game we're playing. The 92% of the world is still in cash. This was a decade ago when he stepped in as CEO. And he reframed for the organization a much bigger game. Reed Hastings at Netflix didn't start out trying to create a CD-ROM mail order business. If he'd done that, they would have stayed small. There was this bigger vision of who they were trying to be in the world. And I think that's one, again, for all of us to take away, especially in these moments of transition and change. What's the bigger game? Who do we need to be in the world? And how will all of this help us kind of towards that? I mean, ultimately, it's the ability to embrace change or uncertainty, which no one knows the answer. So whether it's financial services or tech, I think ultimately people realize you can't control that because there are so many other macro forces. But what can you do while doing it? Oh, gosh, that's so amazing. One last question for you related to McKinsey and your time there. Every few years or groupings of years, you changed into what you're focused on. How long have you focused on this aspect? And what do you think that may evolve to? This is still not relatively new, but a couple of years in, I feel like we're just kind of hitting our stride in that S-curve. And so I'm excited to keep going with this for a while. I do think with that foundation of what does an excellent CEO look like, there's so many places we can take it. How does that apply to founder CEOs, to fast growth tech, to PE portfolio company CEOs? How do we look across diversity? We think about where leadership is going and the importance of listening and mobilizing stakeholders. Does that imply different things for the leader of the future? What would that look like? So I'm excited to continue to explore. There's lots of places to go. And the way you're talking about it, you sound so passionate and enthusiastic about your job and your role. So that's amazing. After 22 plus years, that is incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'll switch gears and start asking you the questions I ask everybody on the show. And I'll change the order quite a bit because your career is unique in that you self-selected St. Andrews, which is amazing at the age of 12. And then really spent the past over two decades at McKinsey. Other folks I've interviewed have changed jobs or done some type of personal journey where they've changed, pivoted. It seems like you have been at McKinsey for so long and love it for obvious reasons now because you get to really focus on a lot of wide-ranging topics and meeting with a lot of people. The question I want to ask you first versus the other order that I normally do, your career professionally sounds incredible. You're a senior partner now at McKinsey. What have you failed at in the sense of it sounds wonderful as a transition, if you could share, and we'll just jump right into it, one of or your most impactful failure and or growth moment. And I used to ask four or five years ago when I started the show, can you share your biggest failure? And over time, that biggest failure or struggle or hardship transitioned to the biggest growth moment that this person had. And so I've now changed the question to say, can you share your biggest growth moment? And ultimately, it does include or embed in there some type of struggle. I love that. And I'm laughing because given the entire focus of your show, I should have been prepared for this question. And so now I'm trying to think, there have been many. It's not that I can't think of one. There have been many, many, many. So let me start with a theme and then we can maybe pick out some moments. Most of my failure modes and growth moments have been when I've gotten in my own head and getting in my own way. I think back 
even though I've been at McKinsey for a long time, I started out thinking that I was supposed to play the role of a consultant. I didn't ever think I'd have a job like this. And to be totally transparent, when I first even told my family that I got an offer from McKinsey, their response was, it must be a mistake. (laughs) You need to call and tell them. Why would anyone pay for your advice? You're like 22. (laughs) I love family. They give the slice of humble pie that you need. (laughs) Keep you grounded. But I think that tape in my head is really, really strong. Definitely a failure mode at first of thinking I needed to play a role. I looked like a librarian. Pulled my hair back in a bun and had the glasses and the suit. Maybe if I put on this armor, maybe if I put in this costume every day, other people will believe it because I don't yet. And almost interacting with people as a role to a role. I'm the consultant, you're the client, let's play our parts. And I think for the first year or two or a couple of years, you do that, but it's really unsatisfying for everyone. And I don't think you're your best self. One of my clients chose to be really vulnerable with me and just kind of share something that was on their mind and something really bothering them. And at first I was a bit of deer in headlights. Okay, we're not supposed to be talking about this. How do we get back to the data request? And in that moment, and I wish I could say it was more thoughtful, but I think it was just instinct, I decided to share two. And I remember coming out of that feeling so conflicted. Did I just break all the rules? Too vulnerable and shared concerns I had and they had, and what does that look like? And they must think that I don't know anything anymore. And why would I do this? And went into this whole spiral and then got a note from them later that day saying, thanks for that conversation. It's the most real conversation we've ever had. It's such a reminder and a good moment of we're all human navigating this together. And and the sooner we can get to interacting with each other as humans all on this journey who happen to be maybe having different roles. And I just think about each time I've fallen into that trap, it's gone to a bad place and then I've been re-reminded, let's just be normal. And so that's become a biggie. Well, the reason I named the show, including the F word, is because to your point, about just the veneer, where there's so much that we can learn when you take down that veneer and say, what's really going on? And I listened to this one interview years and years ago, but it was with Ted Sarandos, who is now the CEO of Netflix. But he said something that just resonated with me. And he said, here's our data and here's the profiles we have on each person. And it blew my mind where it would be Carolyn or Yin, here's your profile. And we're not just women or moms. It was two different profiles per person. And that's different for weekdays, weekends, with kids, without. And for me, it was so beautiful in the sense of there are so many different dimensions to a person. And if you're working with someone and just seeing their professional setting, that's only a percentage, but whether it's small or large, you never know. And so I love that you really brought it back to connection because ultimately that's where you get a lot more of the information and data. Given that you've worked with so many amazing CEOs, executives, I think the book focused on the top 200 of what you found to be outperformers. You could include that list or not, but who or what inspires you? Just in general, in life? Yeah, because I've interviewed a few people and some of it's professional, but surprisingly to me through the years, a lot more of it's personal, whether it's a great grandmother or a friend or other. So it could be anyone that you've met before, anyone you haven't, or just a concept, but it could be a who or it could be a what. I think what inspires me and really gets me excited and out of bed in the morning is connecting with individuals. I mean, it sort of came out even in the last part of the conversation, but it's not necessarily typical when you think about what my quote unquote job is. Do I get out of bed in the morning wanting to raise the stock price of my client? I actually don't. But do I get out of bed in the morning wanting Mary or Akitash or Peter or someone to be wildly successful and happy and lead a team? Absolutely. And so 
For me, it's very, very deeply personal. And that goes at work and outside of work. I fall in love with individual humans and I really, really want to help them. That's my thing. And then need to figure out how to scale that to do the parts of the job that are also important. That's where it doesn't feel like work. Some of my most connected moments, frankly, has been when someone gets fired or someone doesn't get the job that they thought they were going to get or someone's disappointed. Because in those moments, no one calls. Part of what's so hard is suddenly your inbox is empty, your calendar's empty. And I think when we can be there for each other in those moments, I'll give all the time in the world for folks in those moments because someone needs to be there. And then you cheer each other on as you get from there. So that's definitely my thing. The last time we had the conversation, what I loved is you mentioned the personal aspect for you, the personal journey when I think it was within a week or a month that you got announced as partner of McKinsey. And then personally, that was a whole different realm in terms of amazing, you're top of your professional ladder and here you are personally. So I'd love for you to share a moment where you had to ask for someone to listen to you or to lean on given something that happened to you. I'm happy to share that. It shows how your journey professionally and personally can be in really different places. I had been married to my high school sweetheart. We'd been together since we were teenagers. The month I made partner at McKinsey, it all fell apart quite suddenly, quite surprisingly, at least surprisingly to me. It was an interesting moment. Again, conflicting in two ways. One, obviously devastating and emotionally just incredibly difficult, especially when I hadn't been an adult, not with this person. So what does that (laughs) feel like? I hadn't even navigated in the world. It was really hard for me to reach out and ask for help to the point where probably hard to even imagine this possible. I didn't even tell my best friend for six weeks, which looking back now is crazy, but it just shows the depth. It was really hard. I'm really used to helping other people. And it was really, really, really hard to put myself in a place of needing help from someone else. But then when I did, you realize the relationships you have and how wonderful that is. It was also a reimagining moment for me. Obviously, super sad and you have to work through all of that. But to your point of failures, it was probably the first time in my life when there was something really visible had gone horribly wrong. And there was something quite freeing in that Mm -hmm. in a bizarre way. You're a good student at school, you go to a good school, good college, you get a good job, you're on that path, and suddenly shit hits the fan and it all blows up. Oh, okay. Well, now that that jigs up, a few years off, what do I actually want to do? Who do I want to be? And in a way, it was an unleashing moment that was really freeing because it was probably one of the first times I actually thought to myself, what do I want? As opposed to just being on a path that seemed like a sensible one. Thank you for sharing that because I think so much of this show is about sharing those moments where I interview people who are like you, wildly successful, people admire and respect you so much. Show me something because you just seem so perfect in so many ways. And, and, and I mean, to be honest, even your answer is so perfect and beautiful in terms of that time, although hard in hindsight, allowed you to reflect and question, not necessarily becoming self-aware, but just questioning, what's it all about? What are some things that I didn't know? If you can share one or two insights from that period of time, maybe use your skills to get over that or questions you asked yourself and how you actually got to the other side. I do think it was one of the first times where I'd really allowed myself to think about what I wanted and that I wasn't just trying to be the good daughter, the good wife, the good sister, the good... What does all that mean? What do I even want? And I think that was a really helpful reflection. I did the cliche, ran off to San Francisco for six months and (laughs) went into that. But part of that was giving yourself space. And I think you do need to give yourself some space 
to think about it. And then just this notion of there's one life to live. And it doesn't mean to be reckless, but it's also okay to voice that. And very much came from a family where you're supposed to do the right thing and had some pretty felt at the time to me, courageous or brave conversations with people that I loved about, actually, that's not important to me, or that's not what I'm trying to do, or there's this thing over here, and getting a little more unapologetic about some of that while still being kind. You can even tell now I still struggle. How do you articulate things that are important to you? And that doesn't necessarily mean you're being selfish. That's still something I'm working on. Going back to the book, you're being bold, and bold is undefined in all the different parameters, but it's about embracing uncertainty in that way. And so you're doing it personally, but also as a leader at McKinsey. Have you noticed in the conversations with CEOs, is it all professional talk or how much of your discussions were talking about personal struggles or things that led them to be a certain leader? Because I remember listening to that profile about Satya. I didn't realize that one of his sons had cerebral palsy. And this beautiful story about how in the hospital as he was going multiple times with his wife, he would see the computers all running MS Office and this amazing part of not only empathy, but also understanding that, hey, what we're doing at Microsoft is affecting the world. And it happened to be he was there looking at the computers. But I also believe that having that personal struggle of raising a son with cerebral palsy gave him more empathy than most CEOs. And so I'm curious how much of the, whether it's emotional or I don't know how you define it, but even more squishy stuff, has allowed leaders to be even better if there is a question that would embody that. These are huge jobs. I think someone was saying it's more than a job, but less than a life. It's somewhere in there. It can't be your whole life, but it's definitely more than a job. And I think the boundaries really blur. CEOs who are doing it really well have that deep sense of purpose and meaning, even for themselves individually. A lot of them really care about what their institution is doing in the world, but also what they can do as a leader. Brad Smith, we spent time with at Intuit or Mary Barr at GM or a number of these leaders also very much see themselves as their job is to leave the place better than they found it. And what does that mean for them? What's the legacy that they want to leave? And who do they want to be in the world as part of that? They do have a platform to talk about certain issues and to advance the cause on certain things. And some of them have done that very publicly. For others, it's really private. But we went there. We definitely did, right? I'm thinking about Gail Kelly, who was at Westpac in Australia. And I will say of this almost 70 CEOs and nine were women, if I use a generalization, did talk a little bit more about integrating work and non-work. And so she talked about how she would lay out her calendar and it was both her personal commitments, her private and trading off. And how does she hit the both? I think it was Larry Culp at GE who talked about rubber balls and glass balls and knowing both in personal and private which are the rubber balls where if you drop it, it'll bounce a little, you can recover, it's not the end of the world, versus the glass ones that if you drop it, it shatters and you never get that back. And those things are true on both the personal and the professional side. They'd all found a way to kind of reconcile and think that through, but we absolutely talked about their motivations, their hopes, their dreams, and what they want to do, both in these roles and afterwards. And I think the afterwards is a big piece for a lot of them too. You mentioned Mary Barra. She's on my CEO dream team. I mean, talk about her career there, her rise at GM, but also I think for me, more importantly, looking at her bio, the way she handled that transition and also the first less than year on the job, she handled that with such leadership and also empathy. So talking about the mixture of professional and personal, she led that company through the transition as a mother would or as a person who says, how would I want to be treated if this happened to my family? And I just loved that leadership quality that she had. 
which you embody also in terms of how you blend, how you, Carolyn, would be a better person and also ultimately partner and researcher at McKinsey. So I always love that blend when people aren't too different in personal or professional side. What are you most proud of? A lot of people say kids at this point, <laughs> just to give you an example, but some people say professional work, others just say relationships, but just to share if that helps. Maybe I should say kids. <laughs> I do have two children. We were just talking about how do you be your full self and show up that way wherever you are? So my kids, being there for them and with them, but they also see the other aspects of my life too. I guess our family is very much, there's four of us, we're a team, but we're all these humans going through life with our hopes and dreams. And we all support each other in that way. I'm excited as I think about kids. Some people really anchor on, this is half my DNA or an embodiment of me. That to me has never been a big thing. There's these two humans in our household that are these incredible people that I'm gradually getting to know more and more. They're seven and 10 as they get bigger. And I'm excited to help them unleash as well. I think it's all just showing up for each other is what it's all about. One of my favorite questions I've added more recently is about the strength of the person. And why I asked this, the question is, what is your superpower? And why I asked that is because I found that I only interview women, but none of them, unless I ask this question, they're all filled with such humility that they never really self-promote in a beautiful way. And what I love about it, though, is reminding them you do have a superpower. Everybody does to their unique self. What is your superpower? A lot of the folks I spend time with are alpha males or alpha females or really at the top of their game. It's a bit counterintuitive. Being able to be non-threatening and slightly disarming can be a superpower and actually can end up being the ultimate judo move because people reveal things they didn't think they were going to reveal. They're willing to be open and share and also willing to help you shape and influence and guide and all of those things. That's one of these hidden judo move superpowers. Rather than being kind of running bulls or whatever the right analogy or animal is, I kind of poke and prod in the background and get people to a place that they got and they're not quite sure how they got there. I remember just personally, the first time I met you, the introduction about you, it was from our dear friend who was like, oh, you're going to love Caroline. She's amazing and rattled off all these amazing things that you shared the stage and moderated with ease with Condoleezza Rice and other amazing high profile elite performers around the world. And then I met you and I'm like, she's just the nicest, most down earth person I've ever met. This is amazing. And it was just a really refreshing perspective because you could act a certain way based on what people think you would act. And I just felt to your point about what your superpower is, it is a skill that you have. And whether you work on it or not, it's innate to you. So I would echo that. <laughs> what is yours? I'm excited to hear. That's funny. I've never thought about this. So all the questions I ask people. For me, I think my superpower is my interest in connection with people. I grew up without means. My parents were on welfare. They're immigrants. And what I realized is whether you deal with the biggest billionaires in the world in financial services like I have or CEOs and leaders, we're all people and they all face, if not more fears, more unknowns, because to your point about being lonely, they don't know who to turn to or what. So when you show yourself and your vulnerabilities, it's so much easier to relate. And I would have a million conversations if I could just around the world for that, because I ultimately find that when you take it all down, we're ultimately all going to be in the same place. What can we share and learn from each other? So I don't know if it's a superpower, but it's a super interest in continuous improvement. And I feel like we can learn from everybody. I can learn from my four-year-old, my seven-year-old in different stages of just that beauty that they have, because I do think everyone has something in them. I find it magnetic that these people all have their own individual superpowers. Yours is definitely one that I 
I'm very drawn to because it is a combination of a beautiful, humble, but also elite performance enhancement. What you're trying to do is find elite performers, share that, and with others, whether they're CEOs in business and financial services or tech, you just want to share that. And I just love that about your career. I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing. It's having such impact. Two more questions. If you could speak to Caroline after she graduated college, what would you share with her? Caroline, coming out of college, I would share to dream big. Why not? There's plenty of people out there who dream big that maybe should or shouldn't be. So why not you? Believe in yourself in terms of what's possible. That's a real reframe for me versus why me? A little bit more of a why not me? Going back to the directions, I be bold. I love that part of the book. Last question. What's next for Carolyn Dewar? I've really enjoyed the last couple of years as we've been doing this work and having these conversations. And I just think there's a lot out there at the connection of leaders trying to do incredible things. And what does that look like at scale? And I've just gotten so much energy from talking to different folks who have these bold ambitions that I'm still thinking about how do we harness that? And is there more that we can do there to really bring out all these incredible next generation leaders too? I lied. Maybe one last question. If a seven and 10 year old is the way that you grew up and traveled and had exposure to St. Andrews at an early age, does that seep into your mind in terms of, or even the book and the content in your research, how you raise your kids, what you want to expose them to, maybe taking some random tours to Scotland, Ireland, around the world. But how does that apply of all the content and research you have to your children and parenting? Something I reflect on a lot and probably two angles. One is, yeah, we're going to the UK this summer and it did cross my mind of, hey, where should we stop by so that they get an interesting exposure? I didn't grow up with a ton of silver spoons or any of that. And I'm really conscious that kids growing up, at least our family and in the Bay Area, we have a lot of opportunities. And how do you keep them grounded? So what's that right balance of helping them be ambitious and excited? The world's their oyster, yet at the same time, really grounded in the privilege that they have and giving back to community and helping others. And the fact that a heck of a lot is dependent on luck. And there's equally talented, important, wonderful people who maybe didn't have the same luck. So how do we make sure that we're bringing everyone up together? If you could create a book that maybe looks at whether it's the CEOs or leaders and their children, that would be great. I feel like so many people would read it because to your point about access and exposure, I'm assuming these children have it. How do you raise those kids? And I'm sure they're like you where they think maniacally about how to raise children with grit or something to that point. Resilience kindness and all those things. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much for this conversation. I highly recommend the book for readers out there and listeners out there who are interested, but I love the book, the content, and also the author. Carolyn, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.